0: plushcare.com slash weight loss hello and welcome to the intelligence on economist radio i'm your host jason palmer every weekday we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world this year's nobel science prizes were announced this week We examine the award-winning research and how it has, as Alfred Nobel's will put it, conferred great benefit to humankind. And we ask why, once again, all the laureates were men. And Japan's urbanites are struggling to find mates. Now the government has stepped in, designing apps and field trips to match city folk with lonely hearts in the countryside. First, it's been more than two weeks since Democrats first launched impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump.
1: The actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections.
0: The inquiry began following allegations that Mr. Trump withheld military aid from Ukraine on the condition of investigating the son of Joe Biden, a Democratic presidential contender. Mr. Trump mounted a belligerent and chaotic defense of his actions while still complying with the process.
2: She's wasting her time on a, uh, you know, let's use a word that they used to use a lot, a manufactured crisis.
0: But this week, the administration announced it would no longer participate in the proceedings and would refuse to respond to subpoena requests. The Democrats have said they'll press ahead regardless, although they'll no longer be able to interview key State Department witnesses. Yesterday, Mr. Biden threw his weight behind the proceedings.
3: In full view of the world and the American
0: people, Donald Trump has violated his oath of office, betrayed this nation, and committed impeachable acts. The conflict sets the stage for a constitutional showdown. On Tuesday, Pat
3: Cipollini, who's one of the White House lawyers, sent a letter to Congress essentially saying that the White House would not be cooperating with the impeachment inquiry. John Fasman is our Washington correspondent. He called it an effort to overturn the 2016 election, uh, and he said that it was unconstitutional.
0: But the Trump administration and Mr. Trump have, have stonewalled investigations before. Is this, is this a markedly different deal this time around?
3: Well, it is different in framing, if not in actuality. He has blocked people from testifying before. Members of his cabinet have refused subpoena requests to turn over documents. This essentially says overtly, we're not playing this game
0: anymore. So what happens then? He can just do that, ignore a subpoena. I mean, it, it, have have we seen this kind of behavior before?
3: Donald Trump has done a lot of things in his brief political career that make people ask, can he do that? And he's always just done them. So the answer is... To can he do that is he has done it. What does it mean is the question. And so that's unclear. As with so much else, we're in fairly uncharted waters here.
0: But I mean, what happens on, from a sort of procedural point of view if if essentially this entire investigation can be ignored, can be batted away?
3: So this may force an impeachment vote sooner rather than later. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said she wanted it done by the end of the year. What he is essentially doing is overtly obstructing an inquiry that he deems to be unconstitutional, but it it provides a predicate for an obstruction vote on impeachment right now. They seem to have decided that the House is probably going to vote to impeach him anyway. And if that's going to happen, they want to take the medicine now rather than at the end of two months of hearings that garner public attention. They have reckoned that the framing is better. If, If they take the impeachment vote now, they'll be able to say, oh, you know, they're just impeaching him for being president. He didn't do anything that was that wrong. Whereas if you had two months of witnesses and testimony, you would allow the Democrats to essentially build a public case for impeachment and to air out a lot of things that would be used against them in the 2020
0: campaign. And so how have Democrats responded to this ploy?
3: It strengthens their arguments, certainly from a legal perspective, but the thing is, impeachment is a political process, not a legal one. So I have to think that if the White House continues to stonewall, if the White House is going to block testimony from anyone they can, then that does somewhat reduce their ability to build a strong
0: public narrative. And to that end, what what do the public think about it so far?
3: So public polling has shown much stronger support for impeaching the president at this point in the inquiry than existed either for Richard Nixon or for Bill Clinton at similar points in their impeachment process.
0: But the narrative has always been that there is nothing that will shake the faith of the base in President Trump and everything can be swatted away with claims of witch hunts and coups and the like. Do you think that there is any chance of that needle moving?
3: I think that his base, his really sort of, his bedrock level of support is there with him whatever happens. The problem is that's not enough to win an election. And so, you know, even when Richard Nixon was removed from office, 33% of the country still supported him and said he shouldn't leave. So, President Trump is probably looking at a slightly higher number than that as his bedrock base, but it's not that much higher and just that number alone isn't enough to win re-election.
0: The other consideration for 2020 elections is Republicans that are currently in the Senate who basically the calculation has been that they would stand with Mr. Trump so as not to frustrate their prospects for 2020. At what point do you think that calculus may change?
3: Well, that's the question, right? I think that Republicans in the Senate, first of all, in order to remove him from office, you need 20 senators to cross the aisle. That's vanishingly unlikely. It is probably somewhat more likely to happen after two months of public testimony and of reporters pointing out the latest thing that the latest witness said Mr. Trump did and asking a senator, do you think this is acceptable behavior? I think the shortness of the inquiry probably foreshortens the possibility that lots and lots of senators will cross the aisle. But you still have a number of senators up for reelection in states that are purple, right? You have Cory Gardner in Colorado, you have Susan Collins in Maine, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Martha McSally in Arizona, Joni Ernst in Iowa, and those five could end up voting for impeachment in ways that sort of save them with the more moderate public in their states, but still prevent the president from actually being removed from office.
0: So your suggestion is that this ploy prevents the most damaging stuff coming out and therefore preventing that sort of, you know, the problem we saw, for instance, in the, in the aftermath of the, 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 the Nixon story, that people who stood with the president, even when things got really bad, they didn't come out well in history.
3: Yes, exactly. This, the foreshortening of this inquiry reduces the chances that something like that will happen.
0: As, as we've talked about the Trump administration and allegations of wrongdoing and various political ploys that break norms and what have you, the, the discussion has always been that the, the country's institutions are robust enough and that essentially everything is fine with the bedrock democracy of America. When you have this situation and this sort of politicization of uh, a question of potential serious wrongdoing, it's hard to hold that line, don't you think? It does get
3: harder to hold that line. A number of times you've had commentators on the left assert that we are in a constitutional crisis when we haven't been, for instance, the firing of Jim Comey. The president has the right to fire the FBI director. That was not a constitutional crisis. I think we are now in a genuine constitutional crisis in that the White House has essentially cast all congressional oversight power as illegitimate. It has decided that it is—the White House's position is essentially that the president cannot be indicted. While he's a sitting president, he cannot be investigated in a criminal investigation. So the White House's official position is that President Trump is above the law. That is a genuine constitutional problem.
0: John, thank you very much for joining us.
3: My pleasure, Jason.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Nobel Prize season again. Today it's literature, and tomorrow the Peace Prize. Earlier in the week came the awards for medicine, physics, and chemistry.
1: The Nobels represent a rare interface between science and wider society. Jeffrey Carr is our science and technology editor. Although it is very often true that no one's ever heard of the Nobel laureates, a lot of people take an interest in the particular prizes. It reminds them that science is there.
0: So the three science prizes have been awarded this week. Let's take them in turn. Monday was the Physiology or Medicine Prize. What was it for?
1: It was for work which showed how cells respond to oxygen levels. And that sounds an odd sort of thing, but obviously cells require oxygen. But oxygen comes from the outside world, so it's an unreliable commodity. So they need to have internal mechanisms to respond to oxygen in order to adjust their metabolism. This uh, was a prize that was won by three people who'd done different parts of the study they worked out what the molecule that clamps onto the DNA that controls various oxygen-related genes that need to be oxygen sensitive is and then they worked out how that molecule is regulated by uh, its connection to the outside world. Of the, the the three prizes this is perhaps the most obscure I mean, it's a very detailed piece of molecular biology. it's a very good piece of science but it's something that almost nobody in the outside world will have heard of beforehand.
0: So the other two are a little less obscure then. Let's move to Tuesday and
1: talk about the the physics prize. What was that for? They essentially gave two physics prizes this year, uh, which they sometimes do. It's slightly cheating. One was for the two people who discovered the first exoplanet. Two Swiss researchers discovered a planet going around a star other than the sun. They got half the prize, and the other half uh, went to a man called James Peebles, who is a venerable in the true sense, i.e., worthy of veneration, cosmologist, uh, a gentleman who's been working for about 50 years, and this was interesting because normally uh, the prize goes for a real discovery, but this is essentially a lifetime achievement award. That brings us to
0: yesterday's announcement for for chemistry. What was that for?
1: Well, that was for something that everybody will know about the lithium-ion battery, an invention that has actually transformed the world because it's uh, it's rechargeable and it's light. It can absorb a lot of power, and it has enabled mobile devices, mobile telephones laptop computers. It's also enabled uh, electric cars to become something close to a commercially viable proposition. There have been previous attempts to make electric cars, right back to the beginning of cars, actually, uh, using lead-acid batteries initially, and and then um, uh, nickel batteries. But they've never been able to take on enough power on board to have the range to be useful. With lithium-ion batteries, you can do that. You can get a useful range uh, in a car. still takes a while to recharge it, but that's getting better. So this actually was a uh, Nobel Prize announcement of great importance, going back to Nobel's original will. Nobel was an inventor. He was a practical man. He invented dynamite. He saw the prizes as encouraging things that would improve the condition of humanity. It's drifted away, as I was perhaps saying earlier, in the case of the Karolinska Awards, to things which are important but obscure.
0: There's been a lot of talk in recent years, including from the Nobel committees themselves, about diversity in the prizes. Yet this year's science winners are eight white men, a Japanese man. When does the diversity push that's been so talked about actually start to bite?
1: That can be addressed by a scientific concept, and that's the concept of inertia. If you change a system, it takes a while for that change to ripple through. Almost all of these prizes have been given for work that was done quite a long time ago, anything up to 40 or 50 years ago. Now, in those days, most scientists were men. Most scientists were either North Americans or Europeans or Japanese. Actually, Most scientists are still mostly uh, North Americans, Europeans and Japanese, but the ethnic makeup of the populations has changed and in America in particular, the attitudes within the country have changed. So people of um, uh, different backgrounds are um, becoming scientists and also there are far more women. So if we had this conversation in 20 years' time, I'm sure that a lot of the prize winners would be women and some of them uh, would not be white in 20 years' time, you'll expect to see a lot of Chinese researchers as well.
0: In the past, when we've talked about the Nobels, you have had a, a certain thesis about, in particular, the Chemistry Prize, which <laughs> you are you are withholding this year. Talk, talk me through it.
1: Indeed, okay. So one has to go back to 1900 when the Nobel Prizes started and Nobel in his will, had five prizes. Three science prizes for physiology or medicine, for physics and for chemistry, and then the Peace Prize and the Literature Prize. And that was a sensible division of science, because that's how science looked in those days. I mean, there were bits of biology other than than medicine, but he was interested in what would help people. And so he gave the prize for medicine. Chemistry has been an incredibly successful subject. In Nobel's day, the periodic table was a fairly recent discovery. They had just discovered radioactivity, and one of the first prizes went for that. But they didn't know all of the elements of the periodic table. They didn't know how chemical bonding worked. They didn't know a lot of things. And those things were largely worked out in the following 50 years. Chemists will hate me for saying this, but there haven't been many huge advances in theoretical chemistry the underlying theory of chemistry since the 1950s really but the prize continues in many years it is awarded for good work but work which is either quite biological and might easily win the physiology prize or quite physical and might easily win the physics prize this year is an exception this is a piece of pure chemistry and it's very important so this year i withdraw my objection
0: so you started off by saying that lots of people, you know, end up not knowing the names of the laureates, though they might benefit from the work. That's not strictly true. There there are the, the Marie Curie's, the Albert Einstein's. Among recent years winners, do you think there are any that might become household names?
1: There might be. I think the, the relationship between science and the public has changed. I mean, the, 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 the characters that you mentioned, and there were other ones like Rutherford, were heroic individuals. They were Working. They were working in teams, but not the huge teams that you get now. The one laureate off the top of my head who is a household name is Peter Higgs of the Higgs Boson. That's interesting because he was a household name before he won the prize. And it would also be true of Curie and Einstein and Rutherford and you know, various other people like that, Crick and Watson, that they were famous before they won the prize. The prize was the icing on the cake. Jeff, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: It can be tough to meet a mate in Japan. When the government asked marriage-minded singletons why they were struggling, almost half said they couldn't find a suitable partner. So now the government is getting involved to help them.
2: I was in touch with one young professional who told me that she attended matchmaking parties in Tokyo for years and years, but she somehow couldn't find a suitable partner to date or marry.
0: Miki Kobayashi reports on Japan for The Economist.
2: And then one day, instead of downloading new dating apps like we all do, she went looking for love outside of Tokyo. And what she did was she filled out an online profile on the dating site that connects singles who live in big cities like Tokyo and Osaka with those living in the countryside.
0: And is that a common thing, people looking beyond the cities for, for potential matches?
2: Well, these types of matchmaking services are becoming more and more common in Japan. In most parts of the world, these services are offered primarily by dating app companies like Tinder. But what's interesting in this case is that the services are actually operated by local governments. In Akita Prefecture, which is located on the northern tip of Japan's main island, the local government manages an online matchmaking service to link up local residents. And the head of this matchmaking service told me that they have successfully coupled up more than 1,350 Akita residents since it launched nine years ago. And it recently began offering a similar service to introduce residents in Akita to people living outside of the prefecture.
0: So why is it that local governments are, are in getting involved in this?
2: So the big reason is that local governments want to stem immigration and the rapid rates of depopulation in rural areas now, population is shrinking in 40 of Japan's 47 prefectures. And there are many reasons why, like the aging population rural areas, which consequently leads to high mortality rates, which is compounded by low fertility rates, etc. And another big reason is that young people tend to move from rural prefectures to bigger cities to go to university or for better career opportunities. And as a result, the dating pool in rural areas is getting smaller and smaller. And many singles in the countryside actually complain that the same people show up to the same local matchmaking events, which is no fun for any of the singles looking for partners to date or marry. And I think another reason why the gender mismatch in 80 percent of prefectures with declining populations, young women are actually more likely than men to move to cities and then so whereas there are more single women in big cities like Tokyo and Osaka, men outnumber women in the countryside.
0: And so local governments think that the, the best way to, to stem this tide is to, well, it's essentially to run a government Tinder.
2: So the local governments don't just run online dating platforms like Tinder. Many of the local governments actually also host parties to help singles mingle. And local governments organize subsidized group tours in rural prefectures, where half the participants are local residents and the other half are from cities. And then so, for example, in Hokkaido, which is Japan's northernmost island, which is also known for its high quality dairy products, one tour actually takes singles to spend a few days on a dairy farm. And they actually learn how to milk cows and make cheese and hang out with local singles. And of course, go on sightseeing around the beautiful sites of Hokkaido.
0: So I mean do these schemes work is is this is this in fact stemming the tide is is this creating more happy couples?
2: Well it's actually quite unclear at this point. Iju konkatsu initiatives have actually just popped up in recent years and it's hard to determine whether they work in practice. Now officials in Akita told me that only a handful of couples have actually successfully tied the knot using its matchmaking system. And even then, it's unclear if the partners from cities moved to Akita solely for the purpose of finding a marriage partner or for other big reasons like jobs and family.
0: Miki, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jason.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
2: Traffic jams, tailgating...